So here's the thing, Mark Austin Thomas, you and I have worked together, but kind of adjacent. We, uh-huh. we rarely in the in the same studio or the same room at the same time. Right, we Los Angeles together at KNX. And did you did you work at KABC when I was there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it? I was the news director. That's right. I remember now because I remember we had a conversation in the so-called newsroom <laughs> about how there is no news equipment in here. Um, <laughs> anyway, you are one of the most interesting people I've ever known. And I don't know you, but I mean, <laughs> that's that's what I'm trying to solve here. Because in this business, and I think this is probably true in any business, uh, you know, you can... You can uh, you can have colleagues, people that you work with. And you might work with somebody for 20 years and never really get to know them. And uh, now that you are retired, um, it, I said, hey, I should talk to I should talk to Mark and get to know uh, some of the things that I'd like to ask him about. Because you always struck me as being very sincere, very open, very warm, very easygoing, very easy to talk with. And in, in the radio business, that's not, I don't, I don't want to say it's uncommon, but, you know, we, we tend to focus on our jobs. And I think most radio people are kind of uh, introverted. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, that's probably true. Um, tell me about you. Are, is that your, is that your real name? Mark Austin Thompson. That's my real name. That's uh <laughs> Uh, it's a good stout name. It is. It is. I, I'm very appreciative of my dad naming me that. <laughs> <laughs> you you, uh, you grew up where? Chicago? In Chicago, yeah. Grew up in Chicago. Um, went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And uh, got a degree in radio and television. And, what made you uh, go that direction? Why did you want to do that? Uh, oh, that's a good question. I, uh, I had to pick something. Um, I thought that I might want to be a journalist, um, but I was shaky about that because one of the things we had to do as part of a class assignment was go cover city council. And city council in Champaign-Urbana uh, <laughs> meant that much of the issues were agricultural. Uh-huh. And I wasn't really interested in, you know, that. And I couldn't see myself covering city council meetings like that, you know, as my career. I just, I don't know, it's like, it didn't seem very interesting. Um, now, you know, I, I don't know why it didn't occur to me, Mark, this is only going to be if you work here, if you if you <laughs> don't leave Champaign-Urbana. Like, if you go to some other place, it's going to be, there'll be different issues. But anyway, I, I stuck with it. I enjoyed radio. I, I had a I had a shift on two radio stations on campus. Uh, one was classical and one was rock. And um, I also did some work. Um, the classical station was uh, public radio. And I also did some work editing tape mm-hmm. and typing up PSA. So I kind of got my hands into one aspect of the business, which helped me because when I got my first job, one of the things that, helped me get that job was having a degree. I could ask my boss, my first job was in Knoxville, Tennessee. I had never lived in the South. And I said, why did you hire me? Because there were so many other people 
who were local, who knew the radio station to do the market, like, why did you hire me? And he said, well, I like the fact that you had a degree <laughs> because I, I felt like that meant I could send you to zoning meetings and other things and you would be able to understand it and give us good reports. You also were able to just sit down and write a story and you were also able to sit down and edit tape. And so that gave me a leg up. They gave me, if you can believe this, they gave me a ream. My writing test was, he gave me like a ream of AP copy. He said, go home and rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> so getting, I, getting right to the nub of the matter of local yeah, news but, radio. But That's what we go do. Go to our right? newsroom and, and, and rewrite it. It's like, take this home and rewrite it and come back. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so I did. Uh, why news? Um, well, I think I've just always been interested in what's happening, you know, current events. Our, our family was pretty political in that we always discussed at the dinner table events that were happening in the day. Of course, in that day, there were a lot of events happening. What day are we discussed. talking about? What, what, well, we're talking time? about the 60s. Yeah. Mid-60s, so late 60s or something. Late 60s, yeah. mid to late 60s and yeah. then to the early 70s. So um, I grew up in that kind of environment where, you know, my parents always talked about things and talked with us about things and we talked with each other about things. And so, yeah, I just and the, just the times that we were living in, you know, you, I went to, you know, I entered the university in 72 and it's a lot going on. So, um, yeah, and then I'm nosy. I think I just wanted to know well, what's going on. Why is that? Remember my mother at some point speculating that I would either go into journalism or psychology because I always wanted to know, well, why do people do this? What makes people do that? Yeah. So that's probably, that's probably why I've been interested in you as long as I've known you, because I had the same, uh, I had the same leanings. I considered going into psychology as a, as a career uh, before the radio station swept me off my feet. But mm. that time you were living in Chicago in the mid sixties. And I, I'm from the West coast. I'm from Sacramento area at that time of, uh, of our history. And I remember very well, uh, those, those were, uh, those were, uh, tough times. I mean, very, you know, highly charged politically and socially mm -hmm. and, and racially. And I remember, uh, seeing, and I was a teenager at the time seeing, the race riots in Watts in Los Angeles, trying to understand what was going on. And it was a time of, you know, transition and, and great changes in the country. And I would guess that from your particular perspective, it was very personal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember I was just thinking of when Dr. King was assassinated. Um, you know, there were neighborhoods near me that went up in flames and, you know, of course we watched it all on TV and very upset and very fearful. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just, <laughs> they were very tumultuous times. Um, I, I, in August of 68, during the democratic convention before, during late afternoon, I don't know how we happened. To, I don't know if my father really wanted to go there or we just happened to be uh, in that area but we were driving through the area near the convention center and just saw all of these cops i'd never seen so many police officers you know like mm. troops helmeted and you know and going towards grant park and again this was things didn't really get 
intense until the evening. So this was like late afternoon. But I just was, and I remember how Daly had put uh, on some excess off the freeway, he had actually put large boards so that people, you know, the conventioners, when they're driving by, they don't see the slums. Talking about Mayor Mayor Richard Daly there. Yeah. yeah. And I just so, so they so, wouldn't see the slums. I remember reading about that. Yeah. And I just thought that was so idiotic because it's like, aren't you just drawing more attention to what's behind the exactly you know, behind the board? Yeah. But yeah, so it's kind of like downtown kinda, Hollywood right now, Hollywood, California right now. Yeah. So that's, they need they that's, need some of those boards. <laughs> anyway, I'm that, sorry. Those are the those are the times. Yeah, those are definitely the times. And and what was your your uh, family's perspective on all of that? I'm interested, mm-hmm. Mark, because you know I, I've I've grown up uh, in a period of time that has been racially charged. We're racially charged again, and mm-hmm. or still in in different ways. And it's not it's not something that I could ever touch personally. It's not something that mm-hmm. I can really understand. You know, I can empathize, I can sympathize rather, but I can't empathize. And uh, so I'm trying to understand where a black family in Chicago came from. I would guess that there was probably, you know, you you had uh, a certain amount of pressure to make decisions in terms of how you felt and how you reacted to things. Well, I think like with anybody, um, irrespective of race, a lot of the feelings you have grow out of the experiences that you've had. Absolutely. And and um, I think, you know, as a child growing up, I was certainly influenced by my parents. And then, of course, they were in turn influenced by experiences they had. My my mother um, grew up uh, at some point of her childhood listening to stories of people who had escaped from the South. And her mother would feed and sort of let sleep on the porch until they could find some place to be and hearing stories of how they just escaped lynching. And so, and, and the lynchings that, that they saw, that they witnessed. And so, you know, that's kind of very influential on a young child sure. hearing that stuff as she's growing up. And, um, you know, my father didn't have any experiences that dramatic, but um, he did grow up. He and his, uh, he and his sisters at the early part of their childhood uh, and, you know, pretty, you know, pretty poor conditions, I'll just say, you know, tenements, uh, you know, the kind of situation where everyone on a floor is sharing a bathroom mm-hmm. and, and they lived in very small conditions. He took us back to this place. Uh, I must've been a teenager. Uh, it took me and my, well, actually, no, I must've been like 11 or something. And he took me and my brother and sister back to see the place where he, where he lived. I'm surprised they even let us in. And just, but we get a chance to look around and kind of go, oh my God. And of course, knowing that it was much worse then than it would have been when he was growing up, but still it's pretty awful. Um, and I think that their views were, you know, they were, um, they were, I don't, I don't know how to describe me. They were Democrats, but they were, I think they felt that what I was always told, what we were always told is that you have to be twice as good to get half as far. And so we were always urged to never, uh, never take your foot off the accelerator, you know, push, push yourself, exceed, exceed beyond exceeding. I mean, we were never, we were never like burdened. I didn't feel burdened by that, but we, we, we felt very purposeful. We couldn't waste our lives. 
and the opportunities that we had. And I remember every time I would achieve something at school, you know, my mother would always say, that's great. Keep going. <laughs> like, don't, don't rest on your laurels. Um, and we were all, you know, motivated to, you know, seek higher education, just, you know, just, just push. And education was the key. That was the, I think a lot of uh, parents, a lot of black parents told that to their kids in the sixties and seventies, like education, that's what you need. Uh, and so that was, you know, the household we grew up in. I remember, um, my uh <laughs> sounds like you had a lot a great deal of forbearance and, and patience in oh, tough situations um you mean me personally or my family? well you personally or as the family as a whole but yeah i i think so i mean um you know we like i said we we're very active we were active politically we marched on picket lines um you know we were involved my mother my uncle my mother's brother, one of her brothers, uh, was act, very active in the civil rights movement, knew Dr. King well, and introduced my mother to Dr. King at, yeah. uh, at an appearance in Chicago. Um, so, I mean, we were, we were just that kind of family. And we weren't unique in that regard. I think a lot of people that we lived around were also very uh, active in one way or the other. So, But you didn't have any uh, great sense of... of uh anger, some sort of fiery drive to, I mean, I don't even know what I'm asking. You know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm reflecting on uh, the times. Go ahead. I I had periods of where I was probably more militant uh, than, than others. Um, You know, I get angry about something, uh, some incident uh, that would happen and I would be upset about it. And if, you know, in high school, you know, uh, I remember once we walked out um, after the shooting of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark at the Black Panther Party headquarters in Chicago. And my, as a sort of an indicator of my family's, because I just told you, you know, they they really pushed education. That was very important to them. Uh, and I walked out and I came home and my dad was home, which is a little unusual for that time of the day. And he said, you know, why are you home? And I told him, I said, well, we all just got up and walked out. And he said, why? And I told him, he said, okay. <laughs> and they never brought it up again. And that, that, I always stuck in my mind like, oh, okay. All right. Um, but I, I, so I'll tell you something else. Um, the, I remember my mother and I were having a, a heated debate, sort of uh, talking about the virtues of Dr. King versus Malcolm X. And, uh, and, you know, my mother was, you know, very uh, strong advocate for Malcolm X. And I was sort of, you know, advocating for King, not that I didn't, you know, really, really respect and admire Malcolm X. But I was saying, well, but this, his, his methodology has a very limited, like, if everybody had a gun, there are more people who are not black that have guns than we do. This is not a winnable, you know, situation. Yeah. And we went back and forth on that. And so finally, you know, trying to kind of keep the peace with my mother, I acquiesced and I said, well, you know, you have to you make some good points. And, da, da, da. and she turned on me and she <laughs> said, uh, don't you dare, you know, change your views to appease me or anybody. If this is really what you believe, then keep pushing for what you believe. And um, I was really I felt like caught out, you know, 
in that way. But I, you know, of course, always remember that and always respected the fact that even when she strongly disagreed with you, she she strongly defended your right to be wrong or your right to have the view that you had yeah. and, you know, and wouldn't lose any respect just because she didn't agree with your view. That's wonderful. Yeah. What a lesson that could have been. Yeah, it was. It was you know, just a opportunity for you to start thinking for yourself and be ha- and your and the story you just told about your father too. Just asking the question, why did you leave class? Well, we just got up and walked out and told you why, and he's okay. <laughs> That's great. Um, did you have at that time? I, I it's not that I want to dwell on this. Because there are other things I want to talk to you about, too. I want to talk to you about news. I want to talk to you about radio. I want to talk to you about Buddhism. But while we're on the topic, did you, growing up, did you, did you have a, a great sense of, of uh, uh, any uh, you know, antagonism between the races or hostility? Or did you have to uh, you know, worry about uh, getting cornered or hurt in some way by white kids or anything of that nature? No, because I grew up in a... Uh, entirely black neighborhood. Oh, okay. Um, in, in fact, well, you know, I lived in two or three different places, but the final place where I did most of my growing up was because we were extremely fortunate enough to be able to move into a new home uh, in a brand new area. In fact, they were still extending the freeway out near where we were. We were that far south, but it, but those parts of the area that were inhabited, and there were neighborhoods across the way, were all white. But as black families moved in, they moved out. So um, it didn't necessarily have to be uh, all black. But by the time I was, you know, by the time we'd been there two years or so, it was definitely all black uh, residents. So, all right, we're talking 50 years ago. How do you think, uh, where do you think we stand now as a country with the, you know, social social views and and uh, the integration process continuing and uh, you know stumbling along the way once in a while uh well you know we're still efforting i think in a lot of ways um i mean i don't know i sort of try and take the big view of things uh i think we often get to a point where we think we've achieved something uh either because of a piece of legislation or law um and it's an achievement, but, you know, life isn't static and we're always changing. And so um, we then find, oh, that thing that I thought was fixed isn't fixed anymore because of other circumstances. So, um, I mean, I really do believe that Obama used to talk about this quite a bit. And I had held this view prior to him publicizing it. But I think, you know, the idea is to always try and create a more perfect union. So we're always in a process. And we, to me, I think we should always think of it that way, which doesn't mean that we don't have goals or we don't pursue those goals aggressively. But it means you want to hold the big picture and the small picture at the same time and say, are we, you know, are we, you know, are we able to listen to each other? Are we able to hear each other? Because if we can't, then we don't have a country or yeah. a very cohesive one. So I think uh, there are areas where I think we're, you know, where we're slowly, I think, being able to hear that. It, it seems like it seems like we could just go back and forth. There are times when there doesn't seem to be a lot of listening because there's a lot of anger, a lot of fear. And so there's just a lot of reaction instead of response. And then there are moments and situations which bring that out in us, 
you know, and, and we can be very responsive. I think, you know, the best things we can do in the time that we're in now is find reasons instead of, instead of being drawn to the things that maybe naturally set us apart or make us uh, different, if we can find more common cause and focus on that. And I know that's been said a lot, but I'll just give one example that isn't racial at all. But I think that years ago, and I don't know how many years ago, I don't know when this began, but um, probably, you know, maybe even in the 60s, probably, maybe even before then, um, because we were in reaction, and I'll say this is my generation, we were in reaction to rules that we felt were stupid, <laughs> we didn't understand, didn't seem to be very effective, and certainly didn't speak to our values. And I will say that a lot of those values I still hold. I think they're very important. Uh, but I think in pushing back against that and in, and in perhaps starting something we didn't even realize where it would grow, somehow over the next decades, that turned into cynicism. And we began to, you know, I think really um, diminish institutions that we need, that we depend upon. You know, it's kind of like setting fire to your house while you're living it. Yeah. And, and so now as a result, most people have very little confidence in the very institutions we need to make the kind of changes that I think, you know, most of us would like to, to see. Now we have to get over the obstacle of not a lot of people believing in, you know, government, government systems to then, you know, make the government effective. And it's just hard, hard to do. I think we've made it much harder for ourselves. But I think we can work out of that. Is there a way to get to a point where we're talking on a lower level, you know, at the grassroots level uh, about these issues, about personal matters and uh, the differences in the neighborhoods in which we live and and the, the, the things we don't understand about people of other races and uh, other religions you know, the, the the most enlightening thing I can remember doing was a few years ago, I ran across a TV show. I was just, you know, clicking through the 5,000 channels that I have now. And I ran across a thing called Atlanta. And uh, it was, uh, I can't think of the man's name who put the, uh, put the thing together. He starred in it too. But it was a, it was a show set in a, uh, an Atlanta uh, ghetto, uh, all black people on a lower economic level who were, um, you know, trying to make their way and uh, mainly found that the easiest way to go about it was either uh, selling dope or selling bodies and not liking any of that. But that was that was the way to, uh, you know, bring bring food in and. Mark, that was a, it was an eye-opener for me, and I realized that it was a piece of fiction, but at the same time, I also read enough about the creators of the show to know that they knew what they were talking about. I could never go into a neighborhood like that. I couldn't, I couldn't do it, you know? I mean, maybe I could, but I would have been scared to death. And I know that's got to work on the other side, too. And I keep, I keep thinking, why don't we ever just have, you know, giant block parties someplace, <laughs> And and let everybody from all different walks of life and all, all different views come in with the idea that they're going to sit with an open mind and get to ma and make new friends. That's all. And mm -hmm. some of these things might gradually break down a little bit faster than they do through legislation. Mm -hmm. 
I, I think that's a good idea. I'm sure things like this happen, I'm, you know, here and there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know how you can create that because you've got to have, you got to have a willingness from people to have that experience. And it's not that nobody wants to do it on either side. It's to getting people to match up and the desire to do that. I think, you know, I, I think a lot of people are fearful of that. I think, you know, there may be a lot of whites that are fearful of engaging in like that kind of exchange. And it may be a lot of blacks that are fearful too, or defensive. Um, right. Well, that so was the I, thing but, about but, the, that was the thing about this TV show. It showed me that th these people that I, you know, in real life, I would have been afraid of because they're dope dealers because they played their music is booming out of their cars. And it's a, it's uh, an environment that I'm not familiar with and I feel uh, somehow threatened by it. And then, you know, but they took us inside their homes and showed us their familial relationships and their friends and their lovers. And, and I was like, well, you know what, this is the same life that we have over here on this mm -hmm. side of the street is just a little bit different culturally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just, it, to me, it was a little bit frustrating. And I realized that's that's all we're talking about. We're talking about cultural differences, and we're talking about historical differences, and 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 the way people are brought up. Yeah, but remember the example I gave earlier when I said a lot of times people feel what they feel based on the experiences that they've had, and I think that for some black people, I'm certainly not going to attempt to speak for black people, uh, but for some people there's just a lot of, um, I don't know, it's just a lot of anger. There's a lot of mistrust. Yeah. It makes those kinds of things hard to do from our side. Yeah. Um, to, you know, walk across the street and like shake somebody's hand. Why, why are you doing this? I mean, um, you know, I think when also when you, when you're, you, when your world is so constricted, when there are not a lot of options for you, if you were discussing, yeah. Um, I think you get very, everything's very transactional. Like what's in it for me? How, how do I benefit from this? Because you're living pretty close to survival, you know, uh, and, and <laughs> all it takes is, you know, an arrest or, you know, uh, uh, disagreement, which leads to a shooting and then everything is over. So you live very much in the moment yeah. and, th and the whole idea of let's get together and be friends. That's kind of based on, uh, a bigger view, a bigger view of the world, a more generous view of the world that a lot of people who are living close to survival don't have. I'm, um, I'm, I would imagine, I'm, for example, I'm being naive. Is, no, 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 no. Well, you're being that's, what, that's what it sounds like you're saying, and I wouldn't no. disagree with that. No, no, I don't think you're being naive at all. I just, I, I just think, I think, as I said, I think these things are probably happening. They're just not happening in mass. Obviously, we know about it. I think they do happen. I think every time. Look, every time you're working someplace and someone goes over to someone who's different in the cafeteria, in the workspace, says hello, talks about the, the sporting team event, mm -hmm. talks about something that they feel towards each other and they find they have something in common, even if it's just the weather. Like, can you believe the da 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 da? Like, some point of commonality that begins that possibility, you know, and then it just depends on how willing you are to take it farther than that. Um, I just think it takes time and um, helping you to transition to a different topic you said you wanted to talk about. This yeah. is something that makes me that I'm concerned about the news media, because I think the news media makes it very hard uh, to work beyond those obstacles because and not consciously, or at least in most cases, not consciously. But I think 
we focus so much on things that are negative. We focus so much on points of conflict yeah. um, that it makes, you know, like I was saying about how when we diminish, you know, government structure, we make it hard for government to be effective. When we diminish uh, personal relationships by making everyone feel more adversarial or at the, at risk of each other, how can you possibly, you know, have any kind of agreement? So. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about next. I was going to go straight to that point is, uh, you know, is the media helping or hurting? And I'm talking about the news media, of course. Uh, I do this morning news show on KLIF here in Dallas. Uh, the, uh, our, our approach is different than most of uh, stations that claim to be news stations. And that is that uh, we're not strictly news. We're just a couple of people talking about the things that are going on in the news. In other words, we don't read the news, we talk the news, and mm-hmm. uh, we, we have some observations and, and so forth. And one of the things that I do frequently is I say, well, like, you know, it's kind of a running gag. I say, well, good morning. Here's a list of things that we need to get you scared of today. <laughs> Here are the things that we have uh, in the media designed to, to get you worried to death about. You know, it's like your list isn't long enough. Hey, we got a new disease to talk about. Great, <laughs> let's get into that. And, and it does seem that way. And we know that it, we understand it's all hyperbolic and it's all, uh, it's all clickbait, even right. if it's on radio or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I was wondering about that. So you just, re- you just retired. How do you feel about that at this point? How, what, what's it been, a week, two weeks, something like that? Two months, actually. Two months. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was it was the end of May. Um, How are you I'm, doing? I'm happy. I'm happy to be retired. I don't have any regrets. You know, I loved what I did. Uh, I had some misgivings about the way I did it, or I was asked to do it. We were asked to do it. Um, <clears throat> that's obviously not personal personal to anybody who was my boss because it's bigger than that. Uh, I always thought it would be funny. Uh, maybe somebody will do this. Maybe this has already been done, but just kind of as a, maybe it's a TV news story. Uh, to put a camera in a radio news, like for all news station, put put a camera on the anchor. Because so many times when I would read a story, my face would be like, I can't, you know, I, would, I would be so like, yes. I can't believe I have to read this. You know, I got my, like, I got my eyes rolling and my, yeah, and my partner like, sitting you know, across from me trying to yeah. stifle a laugh and that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We know like, that you know, what's coming out of our mouths is absolute BS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or it just, it just really disgusts you that you have yeah. to say that. Yeah. And yet you're, you know, you're reading of this very calm and, you know, uh, you know, authoritarian voice, like, uh, you know, this is all very natural. It's all very normal. And it's just bizarre. Um, you kind of have to contort yourself to do that. I mean, that's the great thing about radio is that no one can see you. And you can do those kind of things while focusing on making sure your vocal delivery is appropriate. So, yeah. How long were you in radio, in uh, news radio, I should say? 40, 45 years. And uh, there was something specific I was going to ask you about. But uh, what was you? Uh, oh, I know what it was. Uh, your best experience, your favorite, your favorite memory, your favorite radio station. I have a guess, but I'll let you go ahead and answer that. Oh, I have to give two answers to my favorite radio station, even though I have really enjoyed every station I've worked at and probably for two very different reasons. Um, WIVK, which is the first station I ever worked at in Knoxville, Mm -hmm. Tennessee, a great station, family owned, uh, Jim Dick, 
uh, Dick Broadcasting on those two stations, two stations in Nashville. And I think he had a station or two somewhere else. Um, really liked him, knew him well. Um, the, let's say the station was family. We were the biggest, uh, and from news, we were like the biggest station in the, I mean, obviously not going into Atlanta, but we just won war to hand over fist uh, every year. We were the number one, for, maybe still exist, the number one uh, cuming, I mean, number one um, average quarter hour share, share country music station in the country. Uh, we just had, you know, people just listen to us forever. And uh, it was just a great atmosphere. And it was like the absolute best place I could have ever had my first job at. I started the day Elvis died. So, you, you know, country music oh, wow. station, that's, that's that was an interesting experience. Yeah. And then the other great station, of course, is KFI here in L.A. Right. And some similar reasons, you know, felt like family. We were all trying to figure it out at the same time. Uh, we had nothing to lose because the ratings, you know, when we started the talk format were just so abysmal. Right. And then slowly but surely, you know, we helped to build it into what it is today. So that was, and that was a great ride. Did you start working there with David G. Hall or did you start before that with George? I started about a year before then. I got there in uh, 88 and I believe he came in 89. I apologize um, to George. I stopped there, but I didn't say his last name because it has momentarily escaped me. George Oliver. Oliver. Yeah. Thank you. Cause I worked with him in Sacramento. He was a great guy. Right. right. As a matter of fact, when he went down to KFI, he kind of backed the bus up to KFBK in Sacramento. Where <laughs> yeah. I seen that way. And uh, loaded a bunch of people on board. I was supposed to go too, but I couldn't get out of my contract. He wanted uh, me, to, he wanted me to do mornings at KFI. And it, uh, it, it got, it got to the point where Carol Ann, my wife and I uh, went down to LA and we hung out a little bit and we got, put up in the nice hotel and everything by, uh, by, uh, was it Cox broadcasting at the time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, uh, we went, we drove around and we looked at homes and stuff. We thought, okay, now we, you know, we finally made the big time. Then I went back home in Sacramento and my boss said, nah, you know, we got another three years with you. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to use that. But that was a great experience too. So I was just trying to remember at what point you came in there. So that was when the radio station was, was changing. Uh, very drastically in terms of formatting. And you guys were taking on. Uh, KABC. I, KABC. Yeah. I, I don't know how, you know, it, but it was, as you said, you were, you were, you were, it was like a startup. We, we call them the business, mm -hmm. which is a starting a radio station from scratch. And that is so exciting when you yeah. go through that process. Cause I went through that process in Chicago. Yes, we both did. I went with through that, it in New York. <laughs> yeah, with that other company that uh, that we both worked with at the time as Merlin Media. Right. Did not turn out well for pretty much anybody at that point. But uh, I, I will never, ever forget those first few weeks when I arrived in Chicago and they were putting us uh, putting us in a, a conference room in a nice hotel overlooking the Chicago river and with a fabulous view. And we sat there every day and, and they did a wonderful thing. And I assume this is the same, same situation you had going on in New York. Cause you were working for the same company, but you were, you were what program director of, right. of the station in New York. So it was the most thrilling, maybe the most thrilling time of my career because they brought a bunch of us with a lot of experience and, uh, 
and talent into the station. And they matched us up with a bunch of kids just out of Northwestern University and <laughs> other places who were local and who, mm -hmm. who knew the town. And they had a desire to do broadcast journalism, but they had never had the opportunity. So they put these old grizzled vets together <laughs> with these young kids and magic was happening. We were, we were all learning from each other mm -hmm. and, and we were able to sit down with, uh, with the help of uh, Andy Friedman, your good friend and mm -hmm. and uh, our program director at the time, and uh, we would sit down every day and say, "Okay, what are we going to do at this place? What are we going to make this radio station do? What should we do here at the top of the hour? What should we do here at this point? How should we approach this?" We were actually building a radio station instead of right. walking into I'm one scratch. that had been built for us, and that was the most exciting thing in the world. Yeah, I always tell people that even though that my New York experience only lasted a year, because um, that, well, the FM 101.9 kind of fell apart about, you know, five, six months after I got there. And I then was able to work at Winds uh, until I eventually just left to come back. But that, that, that year in New York was magical. And for all the reasons that you, you know, you articulate in Chicago, it was just, it was great to be there. I'd worked with great people. It was very stimulating, very exciting. Yeah. And I had lived in, at that point, I had lived in LA for about 25 years or something. And going to New York, which was such a very different environment. I had visited New York, but I never lived there. And I remember they put me up at some place in Soho and I was like above a, above a pizza parlor and across the street from a bar that didn't close until like three in the morning. And I remember like my first or second night there, I got up in the middle of the night and I opened the window to let more noise in. Yeah. And I kind of, I kind of laughed and said, I guess this is where I need to be. Like I liked all that stimulation. When you walk down the streets, I walk faster than anybody. You know, I thought everybody else was a slow walk. And I said, man, I'm really in the right city for me. I just liked, I was so stimulated and invigorated by 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 New York by Manhattan it was just a great experience it was similar to me for Chicago and you you, you came from Chicago so I know that you must have a, a deep lifelong love for that city yeah. I was it just swept me off my feet it was so beautiful mm -hmm. uh, the, from the architecture uh to the the the, the, the lake view the lake line and uh, the people there were a strange combination of, of uh, <laughs> a very, very sophisticated uh, metropolitan uh, and yet Midwestern. Very down to earth, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I just... And you like the weather, huh? Huh? Well, you I, like was, the weather? I was there for one, one summer. Uh, oh, okay. Didn't care for that. I mean, honestly, that was hotter and more humid than than we are here in Texas, as far as I can tell. Wow. Well, I mean, at some points, well, the humidity was just brutal. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. But uh, yeah, it was a wonderful experience, and I was uh, I was very sad when it ended. And I'm still, to be honest with you, I'm still a little bit bitter about the way it went down. Oh, I was, yeah. I was never told why. They told me one day, oh, yeah, we're going to let you go. We're going to do something else. I said, why? Well, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> we're not going to talk about that. I mean, that's what I was told. I said, yeah, we can't go there. I said, wait a second. <laughs> I said, I have a wife in Los Angeles who is 
I believe tomorrow packing the moving van and coming in this direction. Now I got to call and tell her that I've been fired. She's going to say why. And I'm going to say, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) They wouldn't tell me. What does that sound like to you? As it sounds to me like somebody had their hands in somebody else's pants or something (laughs) along those lines, you know? And to this day, Mark, I never got an answer. I never got any kind of, and I asked several times after uh, after I left. So, uh, yeah, it was a very weird experience. Although I'm sharing that with you, but then as I keep saying, this is not a conver- this is not an interview; it's a conversation. <laughs> so, anyway, so um, any uh, yeah, is there anything? Are you satisfied with the job that you've done in your career? Does your is your career? satisfactory to you very much so yes yeah i had enough variety of experiences both management and talent uh enough different locales and cities across the country big and small i got to experience network uh work syndicated work uh when i did some work for marketplace morning report that syndicated all over the world um i got to cover stories that were pretty amazing both as a reporter and then uh, as a news director, you know, like covering the riots, covering, you know, the OJ Simpson trial, things like that. Um, yeah, I, just, I mean, <laughs> I, I, it, it would be hard to imagine, uh, you know, I got to win some awards. So that was nice for my ego. Um, yeah, I just I just had a great time. And, and in a way. Um, it was easy to retire when I did, because um I kind of felt like I was underemployed, like I wasn't able to really use all the skills. And again, that's nobody's fault, but it was I wasn't able to use all the skills that I had. And that was easy to walk away from. If I had been, you know, probably if you asked me, what would you most like to have been doing when you retired? It would have been to be the program director of a news talk station mm-hmm. where the we didn't take opinions. We didn't care about opinions. We just wanted to give you information and stimulate your thinking. And 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 combine that uh, kind of the best to me, the best of commercial and the best of talk radio. I mean, best of commercial and public radio. That would have been a dream job for me. That probably is something I wouldn't have been able to walk away from. But it was a good time to, to walk away. It was an easier place in my career to walk away from. So if that makes any sense. But no, I, I feel great yeah. about the career I've had. I feel great that I retired. I don't have any regrets. I don't really think of anything that I, I used to say when I was younger that I would have liked to have covered the Supreme Court. That would have been like a a fantasy job to have. Um, But short of that, and no, I don't think there's anything that I didn't do that I wanted to do. Speaking of the Supreme Court, I very recently posted one of the episodes of this podcast you ought to give a listen to. David Cole is his name. He's an appellate uh, attorney here in Dallas. He's considered to be one of the best in Texas. He's absolutely a Supreme Court and constitutional law expert. He's the guy that we turn to uh, at the radio station whenever we have questions regarding the Constitution or the Supreme Court. And over the last few years, there have been a lot of those conversations and questions. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I highly recommend it. You give it a Cole, listen, uh, David Cole. And- I will. See what you think, because we recorded that uh, conversation like three days after the Roe v. Wade decision, and mm-hmm. we talked for better part of an hour, 
And with David, there is, there's, uh, there's absolutely no bias. I've talked with him so many times. I have no idea which way he leans on these things. If he does at all politically, he's just a, he's a, you know, he's one of those, he's one of those legal minds that is able to put it in very, very simple terms that other people can understand. And, uh, you know, very conversationally and uh, with colloquialisms and stuff. So I highly recommend that. Now I forgot what else I was going to ask you. Uh, (laughs) Oh, I know what it was. You were describing a kind of radio station that I don't know if it's even possible at this point in time to create. And that is a combination of commercial and public radio. That would be fabulous. That really would be fabulous. I don't know if it can be done because what has happened in, in my view with, with the, the old fashioned approach to news radio and by old fashioned, I mean, just the facts, you know, don't, don't tell people what to think or how to feel. My God, if we could only have a society like that, you know, mm-hmm. keep it, keep it all to yourself, unless you're in a, sitting in a bar or sitting in somebody's living room. But um, th- that kind of radio got lost when social media came along and mm-hmm. suddenly Everybody in the world had a microphone to express their opinions. And then all the, the, uh, the print media and everybody else, the TV stations, the TV networks, everybody looked and said, well, nobody's paying any attention to us because they're too busy arguing with each other. Does that make right. any sense to you? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's exactly what's happened. Opinions used to be more valued when they were less frequent. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and now they're thought they're, out. Yeah, now they're better informed and yeah. and and they're valueless. Um, yeah. But uh, but I think that you I think you could do that because I think there's a desire. I think that the public, quote unquote, has a desire for news that is you know as unvarnished as you could make it. Uh, meaning that you're right. I'm not telling you what to think, or I'm not telling you this is good or bad. You know, you can figure that out for yourself. I mean, certain things are obvious, you know. But but beyond that, uh, yeah, this is what happened. But then to Present the news in a way so again to stimulate thinking, not right. to, not to like. So this decision happened today. Now here are some of the consequences that could arise from that. This yeah. could happen. This could happen. This could happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you you know you use you, you do a newscast, and then it it just sets up very nicely for a talk host to then take that topic and say, so here's what we're going to do. We've got you know a couple of people here, and we're going to talk about again not to get their their. I mean, sometimes it's good. Like I like hearing. For example, reporters debrief and you've got someone who's an expert on this and an expert on that and they bring their expertise. And if they have an opinion, that's OK, uh, because we are not asking you to take opinion and the host isn't taking an opinion. It's just like, well, you know, you like this and you like that. Let's try and thin this out and see what's really inside. Uh, and just, you know, I, I, I think that there is, you know, I don't know. I guess that's sort of the ultimate uh that's sort of the ultimate in, a, in you know our system, capitalism. That you know, can you sustain that? Can you build an audience? Can you, you know, can you can you have a um, enough profit to be able to employ people consistently if this is what you're doing? I don't know. I'm sure there's research out there. I haven't seen it, but I I do believe it could work. It may may it may need the right market. It may be something that wouldn't work right. in New York, but will work in Charlotte. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you'd also have to uh, overcome a lot of cynicism right now. Oh yeah, you know, and yeah. uh, we've gotten to a point where, uh, and it's I think the fault lies everywhere you look: the media, the government, uh, the politicians, 
and and social media that uh, you've gotten to a point where we can't believe anything we see, read, or hear. Right. You know, and I and I'm always trying to tell people uh, on the air say, look, we'll give you one of these far out stories. We've done a little bit of research. We try. We've done what we can. We in terms of doing our homework, we've looked for various sources and try to find the commonality in the story and throw out some of the stuff that is, uh, you know, obviously extremely biased and intended to be that way. But it's just, it's, it, people don't have time to do that. Heck, we don't have time to do that. <laughs> you know, so that's a, yeah. that's a, that's a problem right now. And I'm hoping that it works itself out in terms of we've, okay, you know what we've now we've gotten uh, 20 years or 25 years of social media off our chests. Uh, <laughs> why don't we all just shut up and listen for a change? That, uh, I think I think that's a good point. I think that there are. I mean, you know, social media is always changing, but I think we we sort of got a sense of what doesn't work about it. Um, maybe this will be a good time to try and use a different approach. But I'm an optimist, so I'm always going to see a possibility where there may not be one. <laughs> oh, that's great! No. Nothing like optimism. One of the things that uh, I think about when you ask me about racial relations in the country, how I think things are going, is that um, I'm reminded of what South Africa uh, did when they tried to uh, bring a black and white South Africans to some sort of understanding. There had been so much uh, abuse under apartheid and uh, they use this process called reconciliation. And when I was think this? That re- uh, this was uh, right after, uh, it was either right before or after Mandela was elected. I think it's after. Um, and what I think would be great about that process here is that, you know, I'm constantly running into people who say, gee, I didn't know that, like some bit of black history, like yeah. the, 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 the town in Oklahoma that was considered the Black Wall Street, and that it was just demolished. Right. Uh, you know, you know, and things like this come out, and people go, "Oh, I didn't know that." Or, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Which, which you know, is understandable because we weren't taught that in schools. Um, and so, if you don't hear about it, and you kind of live your life in a more segregated world, so you know, you wouldn't have heard about it from other black people, and a lot of black people hadn't heard about it. Uh, then. These are some of the stories, like the story of Bruce Beach, uh, which I think I mentioned, uh, where this this beachfront property that had been owned by black people uh, was taken away from them. And then only just now by L.A. County has been returned to their descendants. And again, nobody knew anything about that. There's a lot of history that we don't know anything about. A lot of our stories that we don't know anything about. And so, you know, again, one conversation I've had with. uh, Whites have been, well, you know, slavery happened a long time ago. Well, slavery did happen a long time ago. But the effects of that, the ripples from that tsunami continue to be felt today. And I think that a lot of people are not aware of that. So if you can have people sit down and tell their stories, you know, have like sort of a national story core where people just sit down and talk about, look, this is what my family talked about. This is my experience. I mentioned to you that my mother uh, she was growing up because her mother would, would sort of uh, 
let people who were escaping from the South sleep on her front porch and she'd yeah. feed them. And, she, and, they, and my mother would hear these stories as she's going to sleep of these people who escaped lynching. Now, that's 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 the kind of experience, particularly as a child, that's obviously going to affect you. That's the kind of unique experience that most people don't have. Right. So hearing these kinds of stories and not just from blacks, but from whites, uh, from everybody. I mean, this isn't you know, everybody has to be able to tell their story. Everybody has to be able to have some. um some agency to talk about this is who I am. And this is because I think we've kind of gotten to a point in the country where um, a lot of people feel uh, that either no one's listening to me and no one respects me or um, everybody feels injured or at the effect of everybody else. And I think if we could just have a process where we, began to talk about what our experiences are. I think a lot of eyes would be open all across yeah. the country. I think a lot of people would go, my God, I didn't know that. You know, the other thing too is that, and I, I know this is obvious, but the, the stories that we've been told about how the country was created, I mean, that was so, so long ago. Yeah. And even the, you know, the immigrant story from the you know beginning of the 20th century, Ellis Island and all of that, um, you know, that was so long ago. This country is so much bigger. It's so much more diverse. Right. It's trying to juggle so many more complicated issues. And I think sometimes part of our struggle is that our platform of expectation of who the country is, is outmolded. It, it's not really who the country is right now, uh, or, and more importantly, perhaps, who the country is uh, transitioning or evolving into. Sure. And so we've got this, this model that's hundreds of years old and it doesn't really fit the dynamic culture that is right happening right now and that is taking us into the future. So, yeah, reconciliation, uh, a national day of dialogue, a national year of dialogue. Uh, I would be for televising it uh, yeah. so that people have access to it. You can get access to it on the Web. It could be like C-SPAN so you can tune in and out when you want. But I think after after we have this conversation, then there needs to be some way in which we get governmental institutions to now reflect some of the stories that we've heard. So it isn't just everybody's had their piece. Okay, now let's go on with our life. Right. I, I just think a day of reconciliation, or in my view, it would be like a year. Yeah. It would be because I think we need to, it doesn't need to be in every city and every town. That seems a bit much, but, you know, we could, we could alternate between larger cities and mid-sized cities and small cities. Um, different groups of people who would have an opportunity. I mean, every single person isn't going to want to say something. Thank right. goodness. Uh, and every single person doesn't need to say something, but so that we can, we can hear the stories of people, uh, you know, that we don't normally hear. You were talking about the, the feature that you saw on this, um, this, uh, section of Atlanta and how that told you something about, um, this area that you never would have known before. I mean, yeah, the idea a, is to, it's actually, excuse me. It's a, it's actually a TV series. It's a dramatic series, oh, but it's been, no, that's all right. I just want to explain so that anybody who's interested can look in on it. You know, it introduced me to an entire world in, in this country that I cannot personally literally uh, explore to do the year of reconciliation. What we would have to do is to be able to inspire um, average people to talk and kind of cut out the people on each end 
the extremes on each end, or at least, you know, give them, you know, some sort of uh, equalization, but not the, not the major voice. And in that, in that way, maybe we could uh, utilize eventually uh, utilize social media to pick up the ball and run from there. And instead of all the rants and the raves and the, and the shouting and the accusations and the name calling, you'd get more people going, well, yeah, that's what I always think. I've always thought that way, but I'm afraid to say it. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know what process they used in South Africa, but it occurs to me that in encouraging people to come forward and tell their stories, there would need to be a methodology, a way to validate the stories. Yeah. Otherwise, people just get up and say anything. So, you know, there needs to be some documentation or something to substantiate the stories that are being told, not just anecdotal. Well, I remember when I was two, uh, it seemed like this happened, you know, right. Uh, right. because those stories, those stories are going to, if, if the point of, if, the, if part of the point of having a year of reconciliation is not just to hear stories, but to find a way to take those stories and then, I don't know, make some impact in how we live our lives, both as, you know, culturally and governmentally in terms of our institutions, et cetera. So that these stories need to be factual, need to be something that can be, you know, shown to, to have actually occurred. Then, then you can say, well, like, for example, if there was a way that we could show, and, and I'm sure there is, but if there's a way that we could show, like, from 1920 to 1970, um, and I'm just making this sort of blanket statement to make a point, um, that, that black people's ability to buy and own homes uh, were, were systematically stymied by institutional factors. And I mean, I have some personal experiences with my parents who tried to buy a home and what they had to go through. Yeah. And there's been very recent evidence of that. So if you can, if you then can have data to back that up, well, then when you're talking about, well, now we need to make some changes in our housing policy, it isn't just based on stories that people have told you, which is great, but it's also based on the facts that prove that. Yeah, I was reading something just um, day before yesterday. I read a story. I, I don't remember the source, so that makes the story you know, hearsay and inconsequential, but it was about a, a um, they did a study where they had a particular house that was up for sale and it was assessed. Pardon me? I think I read the same story. A black couple yeah. put their house up for sale. It was appraised at like, you know, I don't know, 300 something thousand dollars. Yeah. And then they took all of the artifacts in the home that would have allowed right. you to know that it was black, black yeah. owned, got, yeah. got pictures and things like that from whites, put up right. flags and, like, and it was then sold for a price for like $700,000. Yeah, that, that was it. That yeah. was it. That's, that's startling. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lawsuit filed by, and interestingly enough, filed by this professor who um, actually in his work and his study deals with a similar topic. And he was just so surprised, you know, that it was so blatant. This was somewhere, I think, in Maryland where the, where the house was up for sale. But, yeah, I mean, this, this kind of stuff does not surprise me at all. And I think that there's data uh, to substantiate that. So if people are telling stories about, like this guy, you know, there's data there to support that. That data, along with the stories, kind of arms us as a country, not as black people, as a country. That's right. the other thing is when we deal with these problems, we can't deal with them as, well, this is what white people say, or this is what Asian yeah. people say. It's what, no. this, is, this is what Asian Americans are saying. 
These are what right. black Americans are saying, because this is an American problem. There was another thing that I saw yesterday. I looked at a, and uh, anybody can search this online. There was uh, in Alabama, just, I don't know, this last week, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it actually occurred a, a month or so ago, but they had a, uh, uh, there was a story about a, a black uh, pastor who was watering the yard, watering the flowers of his neighbor who had just gone away for a vacation or going to be gone for a week or something. And police rolled up and said, uh, we had a report that, you know, there was some suspicious person here and, uh, you know, show us your ID. And the man was, first of all, everybody in the story, and again, this is all uh, available on video because the uh, police officers, uh, their uh, uniform cameras were on. Everybody was very polite. Everybody was very calm. And right. it remained that way through the entire conversation. But the upshot was two, maybe it was three white cops talking to a black man who was watering flowers in his neighbor's yard. And a, a woman came out, one of the neighbors, a white woman came out uh -huh. and the cops started talking to her and said, do you know this guy? And she says, well, I don't know him personally, but I do know he's a, he lives across the street and I believe he's a preacher. And uh, the cop said, well, he says that uh, this guy that owns his home wanted him to water his flowers. And she says, well, I don't know that, but that makes perfect sense. I know they're friends. And this entire conversation, it was just, it became surrealistic for as long as it went on. Finally, the, the man's wife came out after he had been handcuffed simply because he wouldn't show the police any identification. He said, you don't need my identification. I'm standing here watering the flowers. You know? Yeah, what's the, what's the crime that he's committing? Exactly. And that was his point. He even said that he used to work for a police department and he knew better. But, but even at this point, he wasn't upset. He wasn't angry. The cops were very polite. The cops were doing a very professional job, although it seems to me that it was a, a really terrible call on their part to, uh, to, you know, take this to the point where it went. They wound up handcuffing him and taking him downtown and, and uh, booking him and then releasing him. And then he was never charged. Right. Anything. But they had this big hassle. Right. The fact that they were all talking so calmly and there was never any escalation. There was never any threat of violence on either side of the whole thing. It was the most absurd thing I've ever seen. And, yeah. you know, and yeah. in, in that respect, it was also uh, one of the most eye-opening things I've ever seen on network television. Because I saw that on this morning on Good Morning America, they showed all that. And I thought, you know what, this is the, this is not the extreme stuff that we always see. This is not the the cop shooting an innocent man running away from a scene. This is not uh, Rodney King. This is not George. Um, um, forgive me, I've forgotten his name. Floyd. Floyd. Yeah, George Floyd. I said, this is this is just everyday America, and it's the kind of conflict that begins because no, for no other reason than the fact that we're all ignorant about each other's lives. And it's right, but you got you got to wonder a couple of things. At least questions occur to me. Number one, is there nothing else happening in your area that you're yeah. going to take time <laughs> to, right. to to you know to put cuffs on a guy who's watering flowers? I mean, really, yeah. 
You know, there, there's no, there's no gang graffiti. There's no, there's no other problem happening in that town. Yeah, that was the, like I, that was not addressed. But in this particular location, I, my understanding was that it was a very small town, very small community. It was very rural in uh, someplace in Alabama, a place that I've never heard uh, of. So it may be, it may have been that the the cops really didn't have anything else to do, yeah. and they kept saying, yeah, "Well, we're, we're just responding to a call." And the man said, "Who called you?" Right? Yeah, I'd want to know who called. <laughs> and I don't even know that anyway. they ever got to the answer to that question. But it's that yeah. kind of crap that turns into uh, that turns into noise on social right. media from people who don't know anything at all about the situation, much less the people involved. And it just, you know, it just, it just stinks to a point where the rest of us don't even want to get involved anymore. So the kind of thing right. you're talking about seems to me that that's uh, that's a, a brilliant solution to try to organize uh, a national conversation that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought when we were when there's still talk um, about you know. Um, uh, What's the term for, like, for example, um, money was allocated for some descendants of Japanese Americans who were uh, held during World War II. What, what's the name of the, the money that was paid out to them? What's that called? Re- reparations? Reparations. So there's been talk off and on about reparations yeah. for Black Americans. And I was thinking it'd be a great idea to tie, um, and not to tie in the sense that to... to to tie it up, but to have, it seems to me that having a conversation, if you're talking nationally, I know the different, um, you know, like California is already engaged in that conversation just within the state. But if you're going to do this nationally, it seems like tying uh, reconciliation to reparations would make more sense because part of not just hearing people's stories, but getting the facts behind that, then would substantiate why there, you know, would be some reason for uh, reparations, but just to have it without it being attached to anything uh, seems to weaken the argument for it. Oh, yeah, it certainly weakens the argument because, again, you know, as a, a white man with no slavery history in my my family, as far back as I'm aware, I go, you know what, I don't, I never owned any slaves. And by the way, you never were one. And why am I giving, putting money in your pocket? It has to be better allocated and has to be uh, better generated in terms of funding for communities that need the help and, uh, you know, outreach and understanding and all that stuff. I don't know. Hey, look, you just retired. Why don't you go ahead and set it all up? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got free time. <laughs> That's right. I'm sorry that I... Did I, uh, did I uh, make you mad or somehow end the conversation? <laughs> no, 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 no. I thought that was funny. Yeah, I've, I've got plenty of time. I'll, I'll, I'll get with the appropriate officials and get it started. <laughs> um, well, you know, it, ha- it has to start at the grassroots level. And I'm sure you know people who know people. I know you do. And, uh, I probably know people, but don't know the people they know. <laughs> Well, and the other part of that problem is that you don't want to know the wrong people. You don't want to get to the point. You don't want to get to the level where the people who can make things happen, make things happen for a particular reason and have their own agendas and their political viewpoints and all that stuff. We really need to tamp down the politics and get back in touch with uh, with the, uh, the the spirit of 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 
this country and the human the human uh, relationships of uh, you know real people and real neighborhoods and stuff really what i was just telling you that story i just saw you know you, you can you can look at it and you look at it and i saw the the white neighbor lady going oh yeah they're friends and uh, the man's wife his his black wife and daughter coming to the scene talking very calmly to the police well what happened she well, we he wouldn't show us his identification. She said, Well, I got his wallet right here. She showed him his identification. And even then they took him down and booked him. And, well, they, but they weren't they but they weren't hostile. They weren't angry. They weren't threatening in any way. I get that. I, and I appreciate that. The things didn't elevate to hostility, but it just feels like it's a very humiliating experience. For the guy and oh it was sure an and an unnecessary experience which i'm sure if or i would imagine if he were not black he probably wouldn't wouldn't have happened well um, that was his whole point and he is planning on suing the, the department because he says he was profiled and he absolutely yeah. was there's no doubt in that no doubt about that and i my guess is that those cops now right now are going wow i didn't realize well, you know. from the police chief, I'm, I'm thinking we need to do some better training <laughs> yeah. because and hopefully the police chief is wise enough to know that, like, this should never have happened. This should never have gone that way. You, why in the world did you put handcuffs on them? You could have just, you know, noted it. We could have called back the person who filed it. But like, right. there's so many ways that that could have been handled better. If we're watching, let's put it this way, <laughs> talking about it's a small town. If this were uh, uh, the Andy Griffith show, it would have been handled very differently. <laughs> that's right that's right oh man you know that's the kind of thing that if barney did it it would be funny because <laughs> yeah. barney was always the wrong people but that's not something yeah. andy would have done you know you've given me a lot to thought think about and i hope you've given yourself a lot to think about and i was only, i was oh, kidding i was kidding and so i'm not trying to drop the whole thing on you but i said you know what you're talking about is a really really good idea and you are retired now <laughs> just saying huh? <laughs> yeah. hey you know what else i wanted to ask you one one other thing and i'll put this aside in some different you know probably up toward the front of the conversation is uh uh what are you doing these days are you still are you still teaching at all yeah, I, I still teach at the Fullerton College Mondays and Wednesdays, um, and uh, I'm uh, active in my Buddhist center, uh, you know, with the different things that we're doing. Um, you know, Ro and I are planning to travel. I think I mentioned that we're hoping to go to London in December, uh, Paris next year. Um, these are all things that I couldn't do when I was working two jobs instead of just one. Yeah. So uh, I've got a lot more time and uh, plus I can actually sleep like most people do, you know, in the night <laughs> instead of during the day. I hear that. I'm looking forward to that someday. We can come back to all this stuff. I'd like to talk to you again at some point. We will discuss your Buddhism because I am really interested in that. Okay. All right, man.